With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Our subject today was at one point the most famous fashion professional in the entire world. Actually, it can be argued that she was the first celebrity stylist. And this was no small achievement, considering her fame and fortune came years before the field of fashion design as a profession formally existed. We are not here to present you with stories of the ordinary undressed. And the life of Rose Bertin was far from ordinary. Born in 1747 in the French provinces, Bertin rose from humble beginnings to become the premier marchand de mode and trusted fashion advisor to one of the most famous women in history, the Queen of France, Marie Antoinette. At the height of her influence, Bertin had over 1,500 clients that included royalty and celebrities from across Europe. So renowned was her skill that she became a bona fide celebrity in her own right, and her portrait was engraved and distributed en masse. So influential was Bertin in Marie Antoinette's ever-evolving fashion choices, she earned the nickname of fashion minister. But if Bertin was the minister of fashion, Marie Antoinette reigned as its queen, and together they made fashion history in their pursuit of all things novel. Together they fueled an era in which fashion changed daily, and extravagance and expenditure knew no bounds. The 1770s and the 1780s were a period of unbridled indulgence in fashion, and today, this really remains synonymous with Marie Antoinette's reign. And of course, also, her demise, and I think we all know how that story goes. I think we do, but I I really have to wonder how many people know where it begins. I mean, Marie Antoinette's ill-fated relationship with fashion, or the pivotal role that Rose Bertin played in securing the fate of one of the most controversial and celebrated queens in history. And to find out, we have the distinctive pleasure of having fashion historian Kimberly Crispin Campbell with us today. Kimberly is author of the wonderful book, Fashion Victims, Dress at the Court of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Welcome, Kimberly. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And I have to say, this is really a pleasure to have you here with me today. I have now read your beautiful book, fashion victims twice, and each time was really as entertaining and as revelatory as the first time. This is a tour de force of research and scholarship into a pivotal period in fashion and human history, and I am excited to discuss the instrumental part that Bertin played with you today. But first, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to this subject matter? Uh, Well, I've always been interested in fashion history since I was really young. I uh, sort of collected books on the period. I traveled a lot with my parents and, you know, visited places much more historic than Los Angeles where I grew up. And uh, the 18th century has always been my favorite period. I think it's because of the wonderful excess of, you know, the hair and the hoop petticoats yeah. and the puffy shirts. Uh, it's just, just fantastic. And if you're going to study any period of fashion history, I think that's a great place to start. Um, and it's also the last period before industrialization really transformed the fashion industry. So it's a, it's a world of, of makers and that that's uh, very interesting to me. There have always been a lot of books, though, on 18th century fashion in general. Uh, they sort of start in 1700 and end in 1800, or maybe end in 1789 with the French Revolution. And that uh, always seemed very wrong to me. I always thought that the reign of Louis XVI deserved its own book because it's so different from everything that came before and everything that came after. And it was obviously 
a, a turning point uh, politically as well as you know in fashion and culture and art. I always compare it to uh, a present-day situation. Imagine if the Queen and Prince Charles died suddenly and Kate and William became king and queen tomorrow, how that would affect our entire culture and political situation and how um, we would all pretty much lose our minds. That's sort of what happened in 1774 when this very young king and his very young queen came to the throne. Right, and and arguably Marie Antoinette is one of history's great fashion icons. Um, And in your book, you talk about how in the early years of her marriage to the then Dauphin of France, Louis Auguste, she was not particularly fashion forward or even that interested in fashion beyond the demands of her royal position. But as you say, that all changed in 1774, um, the year she was simultaneously crowned Queen of France. And that was the same year that she was introduced to Rose Bertin, who was already a successful purveyor of fashionable trimming and adornments in a profession known as marchand de mode, which we'll get into a little bit more later. But can you give us a little backstory about this woman who had become so invaluable to the queen's royal image? Yes, she uh, was from a very humble background, and that alone made her an unlikely choice to uh, be admitted to the court. Uh, social mobility was not very common back in those days, uh, but fashion was was an area where you could charge money for your, your talent rather than your education or your skill. And she really exploited that. Uh, her timing was excellent. Not only uh, was the new queen about to come to the throne, but there were two royal weddings in Paris just as she was starting her career. Uh, both of the king's brothers got married in quick succession. So there was a great demand for, for court dress. There was a great demand for courtly regalia. And the Marchand de Mode uh, had sort of emerged at this time from obscurity. Uh, they, they had always existed in some respect, but it wasn't until 1776 that they became incorporated and became recognized as a legitimate and professionalized trade in Paris, which was, of course, dominated by the, the corporation system in, in the fashion industry, sort of a guild system, uh, we would call it in English. So it was a great time to be working in fashion. It was a great time to be a marchand de mode. The marchand de mode, uh, it, it literally translates as fashion merchant. Um, right. I think we tend to translate it today as milliner, mm-hmm. but it was, wasn't really millinery as we think of it today. Yeah, and prior to 1776, am I right in that they could only sell trimmings and work on hats and headwear as a milliner would, but then after they were incorporated, they were allowed to take on and make dresses as well? Yes, although I'm pretty sure they did that already. I okay. mean, you can tell by looking at their bills that they were actually selling entire dresses and things like hoop petticoats and corsets. Um, they were subcontracting a lot of this work, of course. Okay. But the the boundaries were perhaps not as rigid as the guild regulations would suggest. Uh, the couturiers, the seamstresses of Paris, were only allowed to trim dresses in the same fabric that they were made from. And if you look at sort of mid-18th century portraits, you see a lot of that. You see dresses with beautiful trimmings and ruffles and, and furbelows and sponsons, but they're all in the same fabric. The Marchand de Mode really changed that. And when you look at fashion after 1776 or even in the early 1770s, you see how important the trimmings and the, the accessories are to fashion. And 
that really determined whether or not you were fashionable. The you know the style of gown did not change very quickly at, in the 1770s. It did start to change a bit in the 1780s. But the trimmings and accessories became so important, and that was what the Marchand de Mode sold. And so, depending on who your Marchand de Mode was, that that made you more or less fashionable, rather than your mercer or your seamstress or uh, the other people who were dressing you. Right. And in your book, you you say that fashion is in the details during this period, really a time when surface, um, you know, was prized over substance and basically Mm -hmm. a time when creative accessories and trimming of your dress was championed over, you know, the technically sophisticated garments um, and that these dresses were really a canvas, right, for the Marchand de Mode's art. Absolutely. And uh, and I think it's important to tell our listeners, too, and we talked about this in a prior episode on Elizabeth Keckley, that this is an era that predates, uh, you know, the fashion design profession um, that we know today and that you go to a store and you buy something that a fashion designer created. But at this time, women were largely the architects of their own design, and they would collaborate with their marchand de mode uh, to create what they wore. They would buy the fabric from one, a mercer, and maybe even had their dress made at another place, and then they brought their dress to the Marchand de Mode. But um, in your book, you actually say that the you credit the Marchand de Mode as being the first fashion designers years before this profession was formally recognized. Can you talk a little bit about that or how, how the Marchand de Mode came into being an art form in the late 18th century versus the early part of this century? Yes, we always talk about Charles Frederick Worth as being the father of haute couture, and mm-hmm. I always call Rose Pretend the grandmother of haute couture, because long before nice. he was working in the mid-19th century, she was making a name for herself, and, and she really was world famous, and, and we can, I think, safely credit her with being the, the first fashion designer or uh, fashion seller to achieve worldwide fame. And of course, this was a time before the internet, before mass media of any kind, uh, yet her name was known far and wide. Yes, yeah, so I actually have a really great great quote um, from Louis-Sebastien Mercier, to whom we owe many important contemporary observations of fashion in this period. And he said of Bertin, quote, a little Marchand de Mode from the humble Quai de Gevre, defying all the poetic antecedents, scorning the training of the old boutiques, dashes forward and overthrows the whole edifice of the science of her rivals, she is starting a revolution. Her brilliant genius prevails, and behold, it emits her to the throne. So despite the instrumental role that Marchand's de Mode's played in the creation of women's fashion, they did remain largely anonymous until Bertin. Uh, she was very, very much a rare exception to that. So what set her apart from her contemporaries and made her such a valued advisor to the queen? Only two years after opening her business, I must say, she opened her business in 1774. Well, I have to say, she, 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 wasn't, she wasn't the only famous Marchand de Mode of the time. Monsieur Bellard was very famous, Madame Aloff. There, there were others mm. who were well-known in Paris, even though their names are completely lost to history. And the more I sort of research this period, the more, the more I appreciate that. that she, she was one of many, and when women did, they, they did name drop a lot. They, there was competition for the attention of these uh, Marchand de Mode. But, of course, Bertin had the most famous client of all, Marie Antoinette. She was very careful always to talk about her work with the Queen, which elevated her position, but at the same time made it clear that the Queen was calling the shots. Mm. Uh, I think that was a very strategic move. The idea of women sort of designing their own dresses and ordering their seamstresses and uh, milliners to obey their whims 
is one that is perhaps exaggerated because, of course, having the right marchand de mode or, or having Mosquitan, for example, as your marchand de mode did make you automatically more fashionable. I mean, she, she was bringing something to the table. Mm-hmm. She was not just listening to her clients and doing what they wanted. Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, before she started working for Marie Antoinette, she was the marchand de mode of the Duchesse de Chard, who was by far the most famous uh, fashion trendsetter in Paris. I, I think in some ways a woman perhaps even more interesting than Marie Antoinette because she had the money and the freedom to dress as she wished. Um, the queen was always a bit limited in what she could do. Um, she, she was more heavily criticized for following fashions than other women who were not in her official position, for example. So I, I tend to think of Marie Antoinette as almost uh, a Princess Diana figure, mm. someone who absolutely set trends and was very fashionable, but was perhaps not leading the fashion. Uh, she, she was always a bit more of a follower because she had to be. She, she couldn't be the first to wear something new. Everyone knows the story of her wearing her chemise gown in her portrait by Dijon Le in 1783 and what a big controversy this was. But Madame du Barry had worn pretty much the same gown in a portrait two years earlier, and it didn't raise any eyebrows because she was not the queen. Yeah, she didn't have quite the high profile. So I, I think, uh, of course, Marie Antoinette was going to get more attention and more criticism for what she wore, but that doesn't necessarily mean she was breaking down boundaries. Uh, she she was a wonderful example of fashion, but she was perhaps not the the most uh, daring fashionable trendsetter in Paris. I think that distinction belongs to people like actresses, mistresses of, <laughs> of uh, other royals, and uh, very wealthy. Uh, non-royal women. Yeah, and and Rose Bertin certainly had a slew of other clients, uh, famous royals across Europe, but also actresses and other celebrities of the day. Mm-hmm. And there's a great quote in your book. I think you said, she said, quote, does one pay Vernet for the canvas and paints alone? And quote, she really considered herself to be an artist and promoted herself as an artist. And in this way, many Marchand de Mose, including Rose Bertin, were themselves walking fashion plates and advertisements for their work. She herself was considered well-dressed. Yes, yes. There, there's a wonderful description of her that is found in an unpublished um, English diary by Lady Frances Crew, talking about uh, walking into her, her magazine mode, her boutique, and seeing her sitting on a, an elevated chair like a throne, and she was covered in uh, valuable rings and jewels, and she was sort of extemporizing on, on the importance of dress and, and her theories of dress. And uh, the, the quote is, uh, having her fingers covered with large, valuable rings, such as are in great vogue at present, and having in short watch and chains and trinkets of infinite value spread all over her. And you could just picture her kind of holding court uh, as, yeah. as a queen in her own realm. Uh, and, and this was, of, of course, a, a, you know, a walking challenge for the status quo. Uh, France was not a meritocracy in any way at that time. And here's this nobody from the provinces uh, behaving like a queen. She she had servants in livery that she, you know, would, would have take her to Versailles. And there, there are numerous accounts of her sort of presumptuousness. Uh, but many of these wonderful um, descriptions of her are actually found in non-French sources because in France they sort of took it for granted that people were dressing cra- in crazy ways and behaving in crazy ways and, and that these these working women could become celebrities, uh, but but when you when you look into the writings of 
Englishmen and Americans and Russians and uh, other visitors to Paris, they, they are absolutely appalled by this. And they wrote it all down and wrote back to their friends and said, you're not going to believe what I saw today in Paris. Yeah, I think John, is it John Adams who was visiting there? Yes, Abigail Adams' diary is a wonderful resource. Oh, wow. So Bertin was not the only Marchand de Maux to the Queen um, because the demands of the Queen's wardrobe were far too great for one woman to handle. And of course, as we discussed earlier in our intro, Bertin had many other clients, but she was undeniably the most valued and influential. And um, unlike other Marchands and vendors, ben, Bertin met at least once a week with the Queen in her private chambers. So talk about going above your station. She, she's supposedly uh, making herself right at home in Versailles. And this did not go over well with members of the royal court, I'm assuming. I think there was one quote I read that said she was puffed up with her own importance, treating princesses as equals. It sounds a little like jealousy or... <laughs> well, and, and, you know, similar things were said about the Queen's hairdresser, Mr. Leonard, who mm. was also uh, admitted to the royal bedchamber and who also had other clients outside of the court. And that, that alone was very controversial because in the past, the Queen's dressmaker worked for the Queen and the Queen alone. Uh, no one else was allowed to use her. And that was partly so the Queen would have an exclusive, you know, uh, fashion force, but also because... There was a fear that the Marchand de Mode or the hairdresser would then gossip about the queen to his or her other clients. Uh, Rose Pinard was fiercely protective of the queen. She was extremely loyal. Monsieur Leonard, not so much. He was a bit of a gossip, and, and he liked to tell tales outside of the court. And, and he also brought that gossip from Paris to the queen. Uh, so there, there, was a, there was a good reason for this rule, but, but Marie Antoinette feared that if she cut her suppliers off from Paris, from, you know, the center of fashion, that she then would become out of step with, with what was happening in town. And, and uh, she was quite right. But but it meant that she opened herself up to criticism because the details of her wardrobe and, and of her life sort of became public. And everybody knew that she was allowing these, these uh, low-born people into her private quarters. Commoners. <laughs> yeah, so there's strict laws of etiquette at court that were being ignored here. And there's a great quote from one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting that said of Bertin specifically, quote, the admission of a marchand de mode into the Queen's household had unfortunate consequences for Her Majesty. The skill of the marchand de mode received into the household, despite the custom that excluded all persons of her class without exception, afforded her the means of introducing each day some new fashion. The queen, until that moment, had not developed more than a very plain taste in dress. She began to make it her primary occupation, and she was imitated by all women. So, Kimberly, yes. can you talk about this culture of fashion during this period and the role Bertin and Marie Antoinette played? Were they really having a daily influence on fashion? Yes. In fact, there, there are um, so many examples of how fashion was really speeding up at this time period. I mean, fashion magazines were coming out, not just every month, but every 10 days. And having this daily access to the latest fashion was very important. There, there are other stories of women sort of keeping a hairdresser on retainer. So every day he had to provide a new hairdresser for a new hairstyle for them. Things were changing extremely fast. And the queen was, was encouraging that. She was, she was buying into that and she, she was part of that. And that made it made life very expensive for women who wanted to keep up. And it also, uh, though, was, of course, great stimulus to the economy. And, and so it was it was very hard to criticize in some ways, but it was also a, a very easy way to attack the queen who was unpopular for 
many reasons. <laughs> that quote that you, you just uh, read first was, was from Madame Catherine, who, who was the Queen's friend. I mean, if, if her friend is saying this about her, you can imagine what her enemies are saying. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. You mentioned fashion magazines, and I think it's important to tell our listeners that first fashion magazines came out in the 1770s. So this is a relatively new phenomenon, but they caught on really quickly. And then the fashions that are being created in Paris are being spread around the globe. Yes, yes. And they were traveling much more quickly than you would expect without sort of a, a functioning postal service and internet and uh, you know, photography and all that. They they, they could uh, be, they, they traveled very quickly. And women actually complained that if their fashion magazine arrived in Germany, you know, 10 days after it came out, it was already out of date. But it, it got there faster than you would think. So what's spurring on all this change in fashion daily? Well, you, you can look at that in two ways. You could say it's the technology. You know, uh, literacy and printing is becoming much much more common. Travel is improving. The pace of life in general is, is improving through uh, technology. But you can also look at it in a more philosophical way. And uh, a lot of people did. They they would look at this speeding up of culture and, and say it's because people are unhappy, you know, because they're always looking for something new. They're unhappy with the status quo. 
And that theme became much more prominent as we get towards the revolution where people are looking for, looking for things outside of France, even looking, you know, looking to English dress and, mm-hmm. and English politics, looking to the Far East, taking inspiration from the, the global uh, fashion world and, and, and culture and politics because they are looking for an alternative to what's making them unhappy about France. Yeah. And we can talk a little bit about A lot of people are familiar with 18th century fashion, but so this is the period of, you know, the panniered understructure and these wide skirts, um, and then over that would be a robe or dress and then a stomacher. uh, As um, and we talked a little bit about that, how that provided really a canvas for fashion and also headwear and poofs, which we're going to get into in a little bit. Um, But it's just so interesting in your book. You talk about anything could really spark a trend at this time. You have a balloon launch or a bonnet a la russe or a la americaine and of course all the queen's fashion a la reine um military campaigns anything could really spark fashion and i think mercier said you know it's nouveau versus a uh, new am i correct in that mm-hmm. a suit is new when one has not worn it and a novel suit is that which by its form is in fashion right new new versus novel and and novelty had not really been such an important part of fashion in the past. In fact, it was almost looked down upon because tradition and you know, quality, things like that were, were valued more than novelty. And, and suddenly novelty is everything. And you don't keep your clothes until they wear out. You buy new things as often as you can. And your, your hair changes from day to day uh, because you always want to be not just, not just new, but ahead of everyone else. And can you talk about who was participating in fashion? Because it's really fascinating. You talk in your book about the secondhand markets that existed in Paris at the time. Yes, of course, most 18th century fashion was secondhand. Uh, it was really only the, the 1% that could even afford to buy new clothing. But there was this thriving secondhand market. If we're going to put this in contemporary terms, of, you know, there wasn't any Target or Old Navy. There was only Neiman Marcus. So if you were poor, you wore clothes from Neiman Marcus, but second or third or fourth hand, uh, because they didn't have a cheap alternative. Um, yet there was an enormous amount of recycling and reusing and repurposing. And even even the queen would you know, give her cast off to her ladies in waiting who would wear them or sell them. Uh, so there was this sort of underground fashion market that, that is really not represented by what we think of as high fashion at the time. Right. And it's really interesting, too, when you think about it, it always fascinates me how this is pre-sewing machine era. So mm-hmm. anything any woman's wearing or man is hand sewn at this point. And, and hand woven. Yes. Yeah. And, and this, for me, this is always the hardest thing to convey to, to readers and to students is just how valuable clothing was. And I've, I've even sort of gotten into fights with historians who say no? You know, the, the court dress couldn't have cost that much. That was a, that was an entire year's income for a you know a, a minor nobleman. You know, yes, that's how much it cost uh, because it, it was so valuable. And you know, clothing it, uh, it was almost like we would think of jewelry today. You know, your lace was equivalent to your your diamond necklace uh, because it, it was so um, incredibly valuable, and and that's why it was reused. Even even rich people would you know remodel their clothes rather than buying new ones. And there even Marie Antoinette, you know, there's countless examples of her bills of gowns being retrimmed so she could wear them again. Yeah, and in museum collections, there's always pieces uh, that have been altered to 
you know, for the more present time as fashion changes because it was just too expensive. And you write about how courtiers were really going broke trying to keep up with the impossible pace of fashion at this time. And the queen herself bring up these huge expenditures in pursuit of the new. I think in in 1785, she spent 258,000 livres on her wardrobe. I'm not really sure what that would be comparable to today's terms, but it sounds like a lot. And that was more than twice (laughs) her annual budget. And she made payments to 57 different merchants that year. In defense of Maria Antoinette, yes, she did overspend her budget, but so had every other queen. Yeah, she kind of gets an unfair rep, I feel like. (laughs) Uh, But it it was, again, it was a very easy thing to criticize her for um, because she was legendary for her outrageous and expensive and and amazing fashion. Uh, She she was the leader of fashion. And and even though some of her predecessors weren't, they were still spending a lot of money. And you find this tension throughout uh, the period and throughout the writings on Mary Antoinette is that Yes, she's overspending, but, you know, the worst thing she ever did was simplify her wardrobe. Uh, (laughs) It was was this this very um, simple and comparably inexpensive chemise gown that that really doomed her. So she really couldn't win. She she was expected to not only uh, spend money, but but maintain a certain dignity and and magnificence, Uh, yet that was also a a very uh, common criticism of her, that she's spending too much. Of course, the entire monarchy was spending too much. You know, France was going bankrupt, but this was a very visible symbol of that. And and like you said, queens before her spent exorbitant amounts on fashion, and that was part and parcel to her position as a queen. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what her expectations were? Because she, you write that she didn't buy without purpose. She always had a reason that she was buying fashion. She She bought her clothes three times a year, summer, winter, spring, and it was really to meet the demands of her position. Can you talk a little bit more about what those demands were? Yeah, well, yes. I, I mean, she shopped very systematically with a, a, a fixed number of certain kinds of gowns per year. She also, of course, as I mentioned, would give her cast off to her lady, ladies in waiting. And that was a perk of the job. They would have been very upset if they did not get those. <laughs> Um, so, so she was expected to sort of spend a certain amount and then, you know, consume her clothes at a fixed rate. And so this is a period we talked about strict etiquette. So there's strict uh, wardrobe rules for mourning if someone got married and then court ceremony. Can you talk a little bit about court dress, which was actually codified by Louis XIV as a way to stimulate luxury industries in the 17th century? Yes, I could talk a lot about court dress, actually. <laughs> you might have to stop me because it's one of my favorite subjects. I'm really fascinated by the way fashion uh, copes with, with etiquette and with these, these hard and fast rules of what you must or can't wear. And court dress is a great example of that. Louis XIV did invent court dress as a way to kind of uh, make women dress the way he liked. And even even when he introduced it, it was not fashion. It was it was a hybrid of sort of the fashions of his youth that he was nostalgic for and current fashion. The female court dress was called the Grand Labide or the, the, the great dress, the great outfit. Um, great in the sense of formal. Uh, maybe that's a better translation, the, the formal dress. And 17th century, like 17th century when it was first introduced, it, it wasn't that different from contemporary fashion. It, it, it was distinctive, but it, it wasn't completely out of step with contemporary fashion. The way it was in the 18th, late 18th century by Marie Antoinette's time, yeah. court dress looked nothing like what women were wearing anywhere else. Uh, it was a three-piece ensemble of a, a boned bodice 
uh, a petticoat and a train that, that could be removed. And it was off the shoulders. It had no sleeves. You wore um, lace sleeves that were, were detached from it. So it, it had nothing to do with the, the, the gown and petticoat and stomacher ensemble that, that most women were wearing in their daily life. Uh, and it was extremely expensive. That was really the point of it. When you see, um, you know, these wonderful hoop gowns and, and fully embroidered petticoats in, in museums, um, you know, people always want to know, how did you sit down in that? How did you go to the bathroom? You didn't. You weren't allowed to sit down at court. That didn't matter. This, this was not supposed to make you look attractive or young. Uh, it was supposed to make you look rich. And, and it did that very effectively because these huge canvases for embroidery and jewels and metallic trimmings uh, were literally a way of wearing your wealth. And that's what you wanted to do at court. You wanted to be and be seen, to outshine everyone, and also to honor the king. And that's why court dress was uh, so often brand new, because you, you had to show your loyalty to the king by wearing something that you had bought just for that occasion. And there are actually very few surviving pieces of clothing and accessories known to have belonged to Marie Antoinette. I think there's mm-hmm. a pair of shoes, a linen chemise that she wore to the guillotine. But there is a court dress, this beautiful cream silk satin court dress that is said to have belonged to her in the collection of the Royal Ontario Museum. And it's in your book. And am I correct that you were actually able to go examine this in person? Yes, I, I had a three-week fellowship at, at the Royal Ontario Museum oh, wow. um, when I was working on my PhD. So I got to spend a lot of time up close with the dress. But I would not call that court dress. It is not a grand beat. It, it is a court dress, but I would call it a robe paré, um, a decorated gown, which was Maria Antoinette's alternative to court dress. She, she hated court dress, personally, uh, but she was also very conscious that it was part of the sense and formality that the court was being criticized for. So she really uh, tried to relax the etiquette of court so women didn't have to wear the grana bead all the time. And the Ropari was was one of those innovations uh, that she came up with. And again, which probably backfired on her. I mean, mm-hmm. relaxing court dress was sort of the first step towards relaxing everyone's respect for the court, really. Uh, when when the court began to be less formal, people were less intimidated by it and less respectful of it. Uh, but th- this wonderful gown that survives uh, is said to have been made by her husband for Marie Antoinette. I spent three weeks trying to verify that. <laughs> um, I couldn't disprove it. Let's put it that way. There are so many garments out there that are supposedly you know, worn by Marie Antoinette. The vast majority of them are not. You know, they've got machine stitching. <laughs> they're, <Yeah. laughs> they're obviously uh, not French, not 18th century, but they come with this wonderful story. And and I think people tend to see an 18th century gown and assume that it belonged to it just because we know she had so many clothes. Yeah. Uh, but but in most cases, those those stories are completely false. Uh, most of the pieces, I think, probably every piece that I believe was worn by her is, is in my book, uh, but there aren't very many. I mean, it's a handful. And uh, a couple of them do have really good provenances. Um, the one in, in Ontario or in Toronto is um, the correct size. We, we know what her waist size was and her bust size because uh, one of her bodices was kept with the papers of her Marchand de Mode, Madame Malof. Oh, wow. So we actually do know her measurements. And, and that was a very common thing. If you, if you wanted a dress made, uh, 
you could send your dressmaker your your bodice or your corset because that was really the only uh, essential measurement for an 18th century gown. You know, the skirt was huge and you didn't need your hip size. Mm-hmm. And it, as long as they, um, you know, made it long enough, uh, you, you were pretty much okay. So the... The, the shortcut to having a custom-made gown done was to, to give your dressmaker your bodice or, or, or your corset, preferably your bodice, because, of course, your corset could be adjusted and tightened, but your, your bodice could not. So there is a wonderful bodice that we know belonged to her that survives with her dressmaker's papers. The measurements match the, the um, gown in the ROM, and the quality is certainly fit for a queen. And so you were able to examine this in person. Did Is there anything that would tell you you know it's the right size. Is there anything that would tell you that it was Bertin? It's, it's, is, it, is it more exceptional quality? Is there any signifiers other than the, the sizing? In, in that gown, the, the, the star of the show is really the embroidery. So it's hard to connect it to, to Bertin particularly. Um, there is a very similar gown described in Bertin's bills for the Queen, very few of which survive. But we do have a description of a gown that is remarkably close to the one on the ROM. It, you know, it's got the same flowers, the same feathers. Possibly uh, that's it. If that's not it, she was definitely doing that sort of thing for the queen, selling her these gorgeously embroidered gowns. So I'm, I I think at that period in time, you know, she, she really was buying less for clothes from Bretagne. She was renowned for, for the quality of her work. But this is really the best you can do. You can, yeah. you can say, well, it's not, not hers. This is pre, <laughs> pre-label. Unless the provenance is rock solid. Yeah, <laughs> pre-address maker's labels as well. Um, can you just... Of course. Do we know how long it would take to make any one of these dresses? We talked about how they're all handmade, hand-woven. How long would it take to produce a court dress for Queen Marie Antoinette? You know, it, it really depended on how much money you had. They, they could be turned around pretty quickly, surprisingly quickly, because if you had, you know, 30 people working on it uh, and, and somebody was willing to pay for their time, um, it, it was it was within the realm of possibility to, you know, turn these things out with, within days. I mean, we have we have records of people ordering entire trousseaus from Rose McCann, and she, you know, she could get them done in six weeks. So the, uh, labor was cheap in the 18th century, yeah. and and a, a labor-intensive gown was not really um, a big deal to produce. Uh, the, the materials were where the, the expense was. You talk about in your book how Bertin and other Marchandemotes had these huge glass windows, and when they finished a court dress or something made for it to be worn at Marie Antoinette's court on Tuesday night, they would display it in the windows before the Wednesday court ball. I just love picturing that. Right, and, and everybody went to the opera, and they could kind of see it as they were coming out. Uh, because the sheets were open very late because you know, people were out late. They were out and about going to the opera, going to parties. Um, so it, it was really almost a social event to to go and, and check out the latest fashion. So it's like, you know, looking at the fashion magazine, let's go by the window shopping and then see what the latest uh, styles are. Going, going back to the question of, of uh, the surviving dress, though, I mean, I, and I say this in the book, but it, it is amazing given the amount of clothing that we know Mary went to uh, consumed that we don't have more of her clothes. And of course, this is all because of the revolution. It's all mm-hmm. because of the raid on the, on the Tuileries on August 10th, 1992. I mean, we, we kind of know what happened to them uh, and why we don't have any more of them. But think of all the clothes that, that uh, she wore and gave away during her lifetime. Some of them are still out there. I mean, there, there are so many 18th century gowns. In That's what I was thinking. Are, yeah. How many high people quality have from the un- right period? Yeah, we have, yes, we have no idea where they came from. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I, I'm quite sure that some of her clothes do survive. We just don't know that they're hers. And that will be lost to fashion history at this point, I'm sad to say. Um, moving on, I want to talk about perhaps the most recognizable and caricatured symbol of the late 18th century, for which Bertin was particularly well-known, uh, Le Pouf. But first, we're going to take a short sponsor break. I have to say that my passion for fashion history started very young, and I attribute this to the many beautifully illustrated books that my mother read to me as a child, but none of them quite stuck with me as much as this book called The Lady with the Ship on Her Head, and it's about a fashionable woman in the 18th century. Her name's Madame Poppenstance, and in an effort to win the prize for best headdress at a ball, she unknowingly dons a ship on her poof hairstyle. She's at the beach collecting shells, and she bends over in this ship with a full um, crew on it arrives on her head, but because her poof hairstyle is so huge, she does not know it's there. And this book is fiction, uh, but the poof hairstyle was very much a reality. So Kimberly, can you talk to us about this fashion trend for poof hairstyles, something you call the pinnacle of the Marchand mode art and an art form at which Bertin really excelled? Yes, you know, I have not read that book, and I, I really want to because it sounds wonderful. And I, I think my obsession with ship hats is maybe part of the reason I, I did this book, uh, because who can forget that image? Um, we all can instantly picture the famous caricature of uh, a woman often thought to be Marie Antoinette with a ship on her head. And this is one of the most misunderstood hairstyles in history. I mean, one of, one of the most well-known and most misunderstood uh, but the poof in general came out of the period of mourning for Louis XV. Uh, when the king died, the entire country went into mourning for a year. Mourning was a fact of life in the 18th century, uh, one that I think is very difficult to appreciate today. Uh, anytime a family member died, anytime a king died, anytime a foreign royal died even, uh, the entire court would go into mourning, if only for a couple of days. So your your wardrobe was really at the mercy of uh, people around you dying because, of course, you had to go into black and you had to follow the different stages of mourning as they went mm -hmm. uh, lighter and lighter into gray. Uh, the king could wear purple or white for mourning. Many portraits of Marie Antoinette wearing white are uh, thought to be mourning clothes, actually. Uh, we think of her as you know, kind of popularized in color white, but it, it was partly because she lost a lot of family members uh, during her reign. And, and also as, as queen, she had to mourn for other royals. Of course, they were all sort of connected in the, the metaphorical family of royalty, mm -hmm. uh, even if they weren't French. One of the great problems, though, with mourning was that it was a huge damper on the fashion industry, particularly court mourning, which affected everyone uh, in, in the, the, you know, the small circle of fashion buyers, uh, not just one woman losing her husband. And you, know, you might lose her business for, for a year. It was it was really something that affected the entire city of Paris. Even the middle and lower classes went into mourning. So the fashion industry really dreaded uh, court mourning in particular. And the death of the king was just about as bad as it could get for the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. But one of the ways they coped was by introducing these wonderful hairstyles that provided work for a, a wide variety of fashion workers, not just uh, March on the mode, but feathers and lace stealers, um, mercers. The the uh, poof really sort of hit its stride during during the morning for Louis the fifteenth. 
not just that you kept the fashion industry in business, but it also sort of enlivened the relentless black that everyone was wearing. It, it became an outlet for, for ornament and for creativity uh, for women. Um, and of course, it just got higher and higher. Uh, I, have, I have a theory, too, that uh, Marie Antoinette's um, distinctive sort of high Habsburg forehead was was really flattered by these high hairstyles. Yeah. I think that's why uh, she maybe encouraged them or, or liked to wear them. Is it a hairstyle? Like, is this their real hair and they're just, it's padded underneath? Or is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Everybody thinks women wore wigs in the 18th century, but they, they really didn't. They I, they did what we do today. They wore bumpets. They wore extensions. They they wore a lot of stuff in their hair, but it, it was their hair. Uh you know, they also wore, of course, powder and pomade. And if you if you know any 18th century reenactors, they'll tell you that that really uh, pumps up the volume of your hair when you put tons of powder in it and tons of pomade, and it it makes it wonderfully pliant and and uh, sort of voluminous. Uh, but then imagine adding to that a, a, a horsehair pillow on the top of your head, or false curls, uh, or then the you know the feathers that made it even higher. Uh, so uh, hair just got bigger and bigger and bigger uh, from 1774 onwards until it really couldn't go any higher. <laughs> then it sort, of, it sort of collapsed into a big, wide cloud that wasn't quite so high, but was still huge. And remember, between the hairstyles and the hoop petticoats, women are taking up a lot of space at this period. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's sort of one of, one of the wonderful things about 18th century fashion is it, it gave women this physical presence that they, they would not otherwise have had. And, you know, doorways had to be raised and, and you see little... Uh, little rails around tables so they didn't knock things over with their their hoops. Uh, it, it actually kind of changed uh, the way that not just women but men inter- interacted with their surroundings because they had these incredibly large um, hairstyles and clothing. And you do talk about in your book as well that I thought was interesting is that this is a period when women achieved unprecedented success in the realms of art and literature and politics and and then how you're talking about women using fashion as an expression and then they're also exerting a more powerful influence just by what they wear. I think it's Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun who said women reigned then the revolution dethroned them. Yes, yes, the revolution sort of put them back in their place. But yes, they had, they had been so prominent, of course, not in an official capacity. Mm-hmm. They weren't in the military. They weren't in the church. You know, they weren't in government. But the uh, they, they made their voices heard. And, and I, I am so interested in fashion this period because it was one of the ways they made their voices heard. Fashion could convey political sentiments. It, it could convey intellectual interests. It could convey cultural interests, you know, your favorite opera, your favorite composer. Uh, all these things could be expressed in your hair and in your dress. And so women were, were speaking all the time. And they were doing this in a way that was impossible to ignore. It wasn't like it was sort of on the down low. This was this was very much in your face. Yeah, and I and the ship hairstyle again, the ship poof, because I, you know, for the longest time thought that was a piece of fiction. When you come across these fashion plates from this period and you realize that the, that women did wear ships in their hair and that that ship is actually reflective of, uh, I think it's called, one of them is a coiffeur à l'indépendance, um, as a result of everything a la American, because France was a key political and military ally during the American Revolution, and that really had a huge impact on French dress and politics. It's really interesting how much politics um, and fashion are inextricably linked during this period. Absolutely. And if you learn one thing from my book or one thing from this podcast, it's that 
yes, women did wear ships in their hair, and no, it wasn't Marie Antoinette, and no, it wasn't controversial. I mean, there's there's a a kind of legend that grew up in the early 19th century when some very uh, critical sort of revisionist histories of Marie Antoinette were being published at a time when she was, of course, you know, dead and and very unpopular. That she wore this ship on her head to a ball, and everybody was outraged because she was, you know spending so much money on these ridiculous hairstyles and how dare she, uh, that wasn't the case at all. Okay, first of all, there's no evidence that she wore it. And second of all, if she had, it would not have been controversial mm-hmm. in any way because this was a patriotic statement. This was an expression of support for the American Revolution, which was being fought at sea by the French Navy. Uh, the the first one of these ship hairstyles was called the Coiffure à la Belle Poule, also called Coiffure à la Independence, the, the independence hairstyle. Uh, all of this came straight out of the French Revolution in a very famous battle, the Battle of Luchant, which was fought in the English Channel by French and English ships um, because the French had come into the American Revolution on the American side against their mortal enemy, the British. So this was an extremely um, patriotic hairstyle. Not to say it wasn't made fun of at the time. People absolutely made fun of it. Um, but it, it was recognized as an expression of support for the French Navy. And then other ship hairstyles followed in its wake. And they they enjoyed a uh, vogue for, um, oh, I think about a year or more. I mean, it, it was it was a very popular way to show your support for the American Revolution. Yeah, and April and I, this actually comes up quite often in our podcast. Uh, throughout history, people have used fashion to criticize women for centuries. I mean, it's it's an example of yeah. their flippancy or the weaker sex or their vanity. But fashion is incredibly important. That's one of the points of our podcast we're trying to convey is fashion is about way more than pretty clothes. There's a really deep cultural, political, social history there um, as to why it's important. And case being, in your book, fa- you talk about fashion having a direct influence on the French Revolution of 1789. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I, I think the first thing we all think of when we think of the French Revolution is sans-culotte, um, you know, the, the heroic sans-culotte who sort of led the charge against the monarchy. And of course, sans-culotte means without breeches. And it's a direct reference to what they were wearing. They were wearing trousers, the, the clothing of the working man, the practical garment versus the knee-length breeches worn by the aristocracy. So from, you know, from the get-go, the French Revolution was um, you know, it, it's been described as a, a war between silk and broadcloth, between silk and wool, between a, a, a very expensive elite fabric and a very humble uh, everyday fabric. So the, it, it was a, a convenient metaphor for mm-hmm. the different classes involved in the French Revolution, but it was also not more than a metaphor. I mean, it, it was it was real. This is actually what people were wearing, and and you could identify people's politics by what they were wearing, or identify their class by what they were wearing. You can identify their profession by what they were wearing. I mean, the 18th century was wonderful in that way because uh, you really were what you wore in some respects. And and once people started wearing things that were this, when when maids started sewing pieces of cane around the bottom of their skirts to imitate a hoop petticoat, or when the queen started dressing like a shepherdess to pretend she was a peasant in her little model village at the Trianon, uh, that's when things became very dangerous and very um, uh, controversial. Yeah, and this is the period when, um, you know, it's criticism of the court becomes more and more, uh, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but France's participation in the American Revolution left a huge 
debt in the French economy that destabilized the economy. And then just a continuation mm-hmm. of bad decisions, bad harvests. I think there's a bread shortage, which leads to the famous quote that she did not say, let them eat cake, um, rising <laughs> unemployment, and that when you talk about fashion is masking a decaying regime. Um, so when you get up to the actual French Revolution, um, fashion played a really important role. And just something really quick that I want to talk about. So she, because of her expenditure on fashion, she earned this nickname of Madame Deficit. And is it true that when uh, the famous Vijay Lebrun portrait was put up to much controversy, taken down, that someone wrote, Behold the Deficit in the Empty Frame? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, someone put, it, put a note up saying, Behold the Deficit, because the, the, the painting was gone. It was, uh, that, was, that was her nickname. And, you know, again, she... She became a symbol for the deficit that was, you know, rocking France at the time. It, it wasn't uh, the, the entire French Revolution cannot be blamed on the regime herself or on Rousseau or on any one person. It was a, a much larger phenomenon. Uh, you can see the roots of it in 1775 when it's a really bad harvest and you know, things get worse and worse. But of course, hair powder was a starch derived from wheat, and it becomes harder and harder to defend as as the wheat crop is declining and people can't get bread. Uh, Marie Antoinette did not say let them eat cake, uh, but she could have, and that's that's why this legend persists. Yeah. Uh, because that that was the the perception then and now that the queen doesn't care, uh, the queen doesn't know uh, what what the problems of the the starving masses are, um, and I think that's why this legend about the the ship hairstyle has persisted because you know, we think of her as somebody who would spend a lot of money on something silly. That's not how the story originally went at all, uh, but it's why it's persisted because it fits with what we know of her in hindsight, that, that she was perhaps not um, as, as in tune with the common people as, as she should have been. Yeah, and so the French Revolution began with the storming of the Bastille in July 1789, and by the following month, the royal family had been placed under house arrest at the... Tuileries. Thank you. And this association with royalty that Rose Bertin and others in the fashion industry had cultivated and profited from years was now a huge liability. And we all know what happened to Marie Antoinette and her husband, but do we know what happened to Bertin? Because at least eight couturiers and two marchand de modes were guillotined. Was Bertin one of them? Oh, no, no. Bertin was uh, much, much too smart for that. She left the country. Uh, she went to London. Uh, she was there for a while. She was told, you can't come back because you're an emigre. And she said, oh, no, no, I'm not an emigre. I'm, I'm a humble dressmaker, and I, I travel all the time to visit my clients abroad. So she kind of talked her way out of that and did this over and over until finally they sort of said, no, you're not coming back. Uh, but she managed to kind of cleverly evade many of the restrictions that were put on emigres. She held on to her fortune. She held on to many of her clients because they left the country too. Um, there, were, there was no work to be had in Paris, but so many of, of France's uh, tastemakers left the country. Many of them ended up destitute and you know, couldn't afford her services anymore. But of course, she'd always had important clients outside of France, and she continued to work for them and eventually did come back to Paris. But she was effectively retired from that on. I mean, she she had a few foreign clients, um, uh, the Queen of Spain, for example, but she was not a fashion leader in her own country anymore. And by that time, she she was getting quite elderly. She retired to her country house, and um, you know, died, died peacefully. She she managed to escape the the uh, worst of the revolution, apart from you know the, the loss of business that it brought her. 
And it, it's even said that when the monarchy was restored in 1814, um, the new King Louis XVIII you know, called for her and said, hey, we need to get this court back in shape. You know, where's where's Bertin? And, and, and hearing that she had been dead for a few months by then, he, he publicly sort of expressed his regret. Wow. What a life to have lived. And we could spend an entire other podcast talking about the French Revolution um, and the anti-fashion of the French Revolution. So maybe you'll come back with us in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, and April and I would just really like to extend our sincerest thank yous for being a guest on the show today, Kimberly. Our, everyone should go out and buy Fashion Victims. It's a wonderful book. So many beautiful images and so much information about this time that we just did not have the time to cover today. Kimberly, are you working on any other projects? Do we have any other books we might look for from you in the future? Yes, I, I do have a new project underway that'll be out next year with Running Press Books. Um, it's based on my my uh, Twitter feed. It's, that's, that's so uh, 2018, isn't it? My, my Twitter feed is becoming a book. Uh, but I, I do a Twitter, uh, daily Twitter feed called Worn on This Day. And it's um, clothes that were worn on this day in history. And, oh, fantastic. Any year, but on this day. Um, which sort of goes back to my fascination with, with why things survive and, and um, how, how difficult it is to date fashion. I mean, it, it's very hard to actually pinpoint um, something being worn on a specific day rather than sort of a, a year or a five-year span. Um, and when we can do that, it's usually for a very interesting reason. Uh, something has gone terribly wrong or wonderfully right in that that person's life, and uh, as a result, their clothes have survived, have become um, iconic or totemic. Um, so it's a really interesting sort of non-linear look at fashion history, uh, primarily object-based, uh, using some really wonderful pieces that I, I could talk about for a long time, but I'll save it for the book. But do, do check out the Twitter feed if you want to get a taste of it. Yeah, everybody, please check out the Twitter feed. And thank you again, Kimberly, so much for being here. My pleasure, Cassie. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Yes, thank you, Kimberly. I just want to say that the topics that you two discussed on today's episode are really only a small fraction of what Kimberly covers in the book, and I cannot recommend Fashion Victims enough. So go out and buy it. Yeah, we ran out of time today, but perhaps Kimberly will come back in the future to discuss in more depth the instrumental role fashion and anti-fashion played in the French Revolution a time when what you wore could literally mean life or death. Dress was used as an incredibly potent visual medium with which to express any number of political, cultural, and societal influences of the period. And it continues to be used this way today. The wearing of all black to this year's Golden Globe ceremony in solidarity with the Me Too movement is just one example of the inherent power that clothing has to speak multitudes without ever saying a single word. That does it for us this week, dress listeners. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today and every week. April and I have really enjoyed sharing our passion for fashion history with you all. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at dressed underscore podcast or on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. If you'd like to write to us or if you have some episode suggestions that you'd like to hear, please do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. Until next week, next time you get dressed, why not ask yourself this question? What does my clothing say about me? 